1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger. People ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? And this show is dedicated to that idea. Immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing and what we think about the future of that
2: place as a visitor. As a passenger. The first season of The Passenger premieres February 27th. Subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today we're doing a topic that has been on my mind since probably about seventh grade. And it is sexism in language. And language is a really powerful tool uh, that we use to communicate ideas um, vocally or in written word. And it's not only for like making plans for the evening, um, but big ideas, ways we can change things. And it can shape our thoughts and how we think. And I'm not just saying this because we're podcasters and it's sort of how we make a living. (laughs) Um, But it says so much about our cultures and attitudes and how those things have changed. And I love, I read somewhere in an article uh, that it's like looking at a societal and cultural fossil record. That Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. By tracing it back, we can get a snapshot of what life was like for our ancestors, and how we've improved, and how we've stayed the same, and in some cases, how we've gotten worse. Because it is a reflection of us, um, past and present, of our relationships, of our discourse, the discourse we have in public and private, of our wants and needs, a tool that can be used for persuasion, intimidation. It can also be used to help perpetuate and reproduce sexist and racist and ableist and homophobic ideas, consciously or unconsciously. Even our language discriminates against us. And I am guilty of a lot of the things we're going to talk about uh, in this episode, Um, like saying, hey, guys, or oh, man, or abeless wise, saying stupid or dumb. I'm really bad about that. And it's something that I've been working on.
2: Yeah, I will say that being a podcaster, it forces you to be very critical and deliberate and careful about your language. Um, in a former life, I used to run trainings um, for activists and organizers in the progressive space. And we intentionally wanted these trainings to be inclusive so that no matter your background, you would feel uplifted and respected and heard. And, you know, when you're in front of a room of people that you specifically have gotten the room because of their diverse backgrounds and that you wanna be inclusive with, you really get a sense of how difficult it can be to modify your language. And for me, it was um, using the word crazy a lot, which I realize now is kind of messed up. It's very ableist. And my trick for how I would, you know, if I said crazy, or if I addressed the the room of men, women, non-binary, gender non-conforming, you know, if I I address this inclusive space with, hey guys, That wouldn't work. And so what I ended up doing was putting a rubber band around my wrist. And whenever I heard myself say one of the things I was trying not to say, I would snap it just as like a, not hard, but (laughs) just as a way to remind myself, you're not doing that, you're not doing that as a a physical self-corrective method.
1: That sounds like a great tip. That reminds me of when I was trying to work on my posture and I put um, duct tape on my lower back. And so every time I was slouching, it would pull all the hairs and skin on my lower back, and it would make me sit up straight. It mm-hmm. sounds like you were doing the language version of my duct tape back trick. Pretty much. <laughs> um, so listeners probably know I'm a bit of a language nerd, and... Um, So we're going to be using some language terms, but I promise it'll be fun. Um, And this is something, this whole idea of sexism and language, like I said, I've been thinking about since middle school when someone told me during French class that throughout most of the world, the word for woman is associated with the word for evil. And I don't know if that's true. I couldn't find out if that was actually true. But while I was researching to find out if it was true, I found a wealth of sexism in our language. And I wanted to talk about it. And I think another thing before we dive in here that we forget are these other forms of communication like body language or sign language. I used to be part of this organization in college that was all about fostering relationships and understanding between different cultures. And when we went to conferences, we all spoke different languages. So the delegation from each country would go on stage and do a dance that they had prepared that they thought communicated what they were all about. And it was a great icebreaker I just feel like we forget a lot that we do communicate and we can communicate in all of these other ways. Dancing is a fun one. Yeah, that's
2: a good reminder. We often don't think about nonverbal communication as a, as a, at least I don't. I forget about it all the time. But like when Annie and I do this podcast, I, right now I'm in DC and Annie is in Atlanta, but we have it on Skype so we can see how the other is visually and like facially responding. Um, Because it does help to communicate.
1: Yes, it does. And I've said before on this show, I have one ear that is really, really bad. And so I depend a lot on watching people's mouths. To It like, helps me process simultaneously. It's almost like I'm hearing you through my eyes. (laughs) Um, And if I don't, that's why I hate speaking on the phone so much. It it makes me really anxious when I can't see people's mouths because I'm having to work twice as hard to make out what they're saying, and it makes me seem really awkward on the phone. Um, in fact, I found out later that somebody almost didn't give me a job because they, I was so awkward on the phone. But it was just me trying to, okay, I think that's what they said. Like, there's, there's always these pauses that seem a little longer than necessary when mm. you're speaking with me on the phone because I'm trying to make sure, okay, I think I know what you said. Um, so if you've ever noticed any awkwardness with phone interviews... That's what it was.
2: (laughs) You say, is this a shout out to your former interviewees, interviewers? Yes.
1: yes. (laughs) But here I am in an audio medium. So (laughs) dreams can come true. Um, And we are going to be digging into mostly sexism in language and mostly English. But I did want to include that in there that there is a lot of nonverbal communication stuff. And also, for listeners outside of the English-speaking world, please write in if you have examples um, from your own language because I would love to hear them. I, Like I said, I'm a really big language nerd. Um, and also, we're not here to ruin your party. Or we are, but it's so you can throw a better party that's more welcoming to everyone. And also, I mean, these are fun facts, even if some of them are sad. <laughs> That sounds so strange, but it's true. It's like what historically where these things have come from in some cases is really interesting.
2: I also think it's just an interesting reminder that language changes and shapes and, you know, grows with culture. One of the things I wanted to make sure that we point out is that, you know, in conversations that folks are having around the dictionary adding the pronoun they and how the push to make our language less gendered, Language shapes, it changes, it grows, it breathes. You know, the words that mean one thing become something else. And that's how it's always been. I think we can get really hung up on this word means X always. And we need to step back and see the ways that language does grow. And it, 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 some of it is disappointing. But yeah, like you said, it's interesting. And it's interesting to, to see how language has shaped over the years.
1: Yeah, seeing it evolve um, right now kind of like you were saying, I went to a talk and they were discussing how in a lot of languages there aren't words for transgender specifically and how it kind of erases that experience when there aren't words for it and then what do you do? Do you make a word? Do you adopt like an English word? So these conversations are happening and language is constantly shifting and I think that that is a good thing, that it's becoming more inclusive. But there are still a lot of words I think we take for granted that do have uh, <laughs> this underlying sexism with them, and so to talk about this, we're we're going to discuss collocation first. So co-location is when you hear a word and your brain automatically fills in the blank for the word that should go with it. Um, so if I say. I think the example, the Guardian article I, I was reading about this gave is pop. Like, your mind might automatically think star or corn or something that it just, your brain supplies this word for you that it thinks goes with that word, the first word. And I've uh, been doing a lot of research into Disney's portrayals of mothers lately. And one, another one I found is evil stepmother. So a lot of times when you hear the word stepmother, your brain automatically thinks evil, Uh, which is not great. (laughs) It's not great. I mean, I remember growing up and
2: thinking that stepmoms were all evil. Like if there was, if someone was like, oh, this is my stepmom. When I was a kid, I associated that with evil, with like she must be horrible. She Did she must lock be. you in the basement?
1: <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, the, the research shows that that association starts pretty much as soon as you can watch Cinderella. <laughs> like, it's cemented. Um, so, in early 2016, the Guardian published an article criticizing the Oxford English Dictionary and some of the sexist examples of co-location they used when demonstrating a word's common usage, which is, by the way, how the dictionary defended these examples— Kind of like, it's sexist, but it's how people use it. Uh, it's not us, it's you type of thing. Um, so here's the official statement the OED released. The example sentences we use are taken from a huge variety of different sources and do not represent the views or opinions of Oxford University Press. So, yeah, we're not sexist. You are. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love that response. Right. <laughs> um, so here's an example of what we're talking about. Uh, rabid feminist. This was an example they gave for the how the word rabid is commonly used, was rabid feminist. Another example is nagging wife and grating and shrill to describe female voices but not male voices.
2: Mm. I do love that uh, the writer and comedian Lindy West, her autobiography is called Shrill and now she's developing a TV show spinning off of that experience. And it's really sort of taking back this idea that as a as a loud feminist that, you know, has probably been called shrill her entire life, you know, kind of reclaiming that word and saying, yeah, I am shrill. It's my badge <laughs> of honor.
1: <laughs> I'm proud to be shrill. So after all of this negative press, the OED released a statement saying they were reviewing the example sentence for rabid to ensure that it reflects current usage. Which is good, but it's only a start because I would bet that a lot of folks are still going to co-locate rabid with feminist. Yeah, I think I co-locate it with with dog. That, yeah, that makes sense to me. (laughs) That makes sense to me. Another part of this conversation is pejoration. Um, So this is, as you might guess from pejorative, it's when the meaning of a word gets worse as time goes on. And linguists posit that this happens more often when looking at words referring to women than when looking at words referring to men. And there are so many examples, and surprise, surprise, most of them negatively sexualize women over time. Um, And also, all of them reinforce the gender binary, which we were sort of talking about at the top, which is another problem that we need to tackle when it comes to our language. But okay, let's look at some examples. Starting with courtesan or courtesan. (laughs) You you, got to say it fancy. (laughs) Yeah, I I realized uh, I didn't put the right accent with it. Uh, Courtesan, which at one time, a courtesan was the female version of the courtier, which referred to somebody invited to attend the court of royalty. Courtesan lost that meaning completely. And if you look up the definition now, you'll get something along the lines of a prostitute or paramour, especially one associating with noblemen or men of wealth. And nothing else. That's the definition that you get. And to me, this is so telling to the positions of power women were allowed to have or not have, suspicions around women's ambitions and motives, anxieties around female sexuality and sexual agency, and valuing women based on their bodies and sex appeal. Um, And if those sound like they're still relevant... That's because they are.
2: <laughs> so another one is governess. So if you think about it, logically, governess should be the female version of governor, which is the title of someone who has power and authority over a place. But around the 15th century, it came to meet a woman who cares for and supervises someone, usually a child. Now, that's not to say that, you know, taking care of a kid is not a valid and important job, but compare that to governor. It doesn't really have the same weight.
1: Yeah, it's not equal. Uh, Another one is hussy. Hussy once meant head of house. End of story. It's derived from the 13th century word for housewife. But when the 17th century rolled around, it took on another meaning, which eventually became the only definition, a disreputable woman of improper behavior. And again, this is a put down of women to undercut their power and to stigmatize female sexuality.
2: One of my favorites madam. Yeah. Now, this used to be what ma'am is today, only more it distinguished. Like, when I hear madam, I think of it as, as a very kind of distinguished title. It denotes a woman with high rank, the female equivalent of sir. Now, in the 18th century, this changed when people started using madam to mean, quote, a conceited and precocious girl or young woman, a hussy, a minx, or a prostitute or mistress. And by the 19th century, a woman managing a brothel. Because that is the only high up rank a woman
1: can have, right, is managing a brothel. Uh, That sounds about right. (laughs) And speaking of mistress, this is another great example. Once the female equivalent of master or someone with power or authority and usually an employer. um, But as we all probably know, that is not the meaning anymore. It lost to that original meaning in the 17th century and it now refers to a woman that is not a man's wife that the man is having a long-term sexual relationship with. That is its sole definition. And once again, you see the title stripped of power, and you see it sexualized and sexualized in service to men.
2: One of my favorite words, spinster. <laughs> That's a good So one. it's a good one. It's not one that you hear a lot of. No. Um, but it's... Got a lot of weight attached to it, I guess, for me. I guess I'll put it that way. Um, so basically, y'all know what a spinster is supposed to be. It's a woman who lives alone. Maybe she has some cats. Maybe she's weird. Probably wears a lot of sweaters. Maybe some clogs in the mix. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, there's a weird woman who romantic partnership is, like, off the table. She lives alone and has cats. Well, spinster actually just meant someone who spun thread or yarn. Now, typically, that person was a woman, but not always. And it wasn't until the eighteenth century that that definition became associated with someone who was outside of the typical like marrying or childbearing age,
1: yeah, because for a while, an unmarried woman, one way she could make money is by spinning yarn. and so the legal definition actually became um, that <laughs> Spencer referred to an unmarried woman, and then From there, it's pretty easy to see, yeah, it it was old maid, essentially. And the current definition comes with the disclaimer, disparaging and defensive. But the male equivalent is bachelor. That's a much more, has a much more positive connotation.
2: Yeah, it's so funny. I was thinking about this recently, how, I don't don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, Warren Beatty, young Warren Beatty, he was sort of this um, serial, they used to call him like a serial bachelor. And- kind of in the 70s and the 80s, he was sort of this, like, sexy, worldly guy who was, like, the quintessential bachelor. And there's not really a, a female equivalent in, in culture, at least that I can think of, that's, like, you know, an unmarried woman who is having lots of fun, dating around, has a great career, travels. Like, that's not really... We definitely associate enjoying intentional singleness with men, And with women, it's just sad and weird.
1: Yes. And I was thinking about this, too, when it comes to the word cougar and how that has this negative vibe to it. And I was trying to think if there was a male equivalent. um, To cougar? Yeah. Oh,
2: there is a male equivalent to cougar. It's silver fox.
1: (laughs) (laughs) See, that sounds so much nicer.
2: (laughs) I guess it is not a one-to-one comparison, but an older, still handsome man who kind of, like, can date a younger woman, but not in, like, the sugar baby, sugar daddy kind of way, I would consider that to be a silver fox. Ah. Uh.
1: <laughs>
2: so, like, uh, Sean Connery might be a, a silver fox.
1: Right, 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 right. Um, that was the most, when I saw, what is it called, entrapment when I was pretty young, and I didn't buy it immediately because I was like, Sean Connery's too old. Why is that hot lady? <laughs> I came to him. <laughs> Was that
2: Catherine Zeta-Jones?
1: Yeah. <laughs> She's married to Michael Douglas. I know. I didn't know that at the time. Like she, was to, she was married to a silver fox. She is. She is. She's very important to this whole conversation. <laughs> uh, this was 10-year-old Annie's thoughts. Please don't judge current Annie on it. I haven't seen that movie in a while. I'd have to rethink it. Uh, but, so another example is Tart. It used to be a shortening of sweetheart. But starting in the 1880s, it came to mean... Yep, a prostitute or a woman of immoral character.
2: Another good one, wench. It used to just mean a baby or a young unmarried woman, but starting in the 1400s, it began to be used to describe a mistress or a sexually lawless or, quote, loose woman.
1: Yeah, so pretty much all of these, if we look at them, they started meaning something that was equivalent to the male word, the male version of the word. And then they all lost their power and by and large started defining women through their sexual desirability or lack of desirability with regards to men or otherwise subordinating them to men and or defining them in relationship to men. So the very fact that we have a Mrs. and Miss, but not a male equivalent, that should tell you something. Definitely. So we have some more discussion around this whole thing. But first, we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
0: Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something
0: And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises.
1: So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone.
0: The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Another piece of this whole thing is how in our language, male is generally the default, and this is everywhere. Think of popular suffixes in English added onto words traditionally referring to men so that they now refer to women, like et, s tricks, or the suffix man to refer to jobs that both men and women can't hold, like in chairman, councilman, policeman, salesman, mailman, and the word mankind or even human mankind or man-made. I, I mean, it's everywhere. Um, Or if you look at the words for doctor or lawyer, think of how often you hear in the news, female doctor or female lawyer, since women are seen as outside of the norm in those professions. And I remember hearing female prosecutor over and over again in uh, the whole Brett Kavanaugh news coverage thing, like, female prosecutor.
2: yeah, as if that means that she prosecutes with her vagina, like, oh, she's a woman, you know <laughs> you know um, it didn't make any sense. And it's funny because recently they've just done some rejiggering of how they're going to make those signs that say things like men working that mm-hmm. they're going to try to figure out a way to have it be more gender inclusive where, you know, it's not men working, it's people working, you know, right um, and so, yeah, they're all there it's interesting how these things kind of show up. Pretty recently, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, somebody tweeted at her that she needed to stop saying Congress people because, you know, she's in Congress and she's not a man and the title is congressman. And that person eventually apologized. They were like, yeah, she's right. Like, she's right to, to say Congress people. Um, it's really interesting how gendered these things are. They're just, we say them without even thinking about it, really. But it does warp how we see ourselves.
1: It does, um, and it, it kind of reminds me of that riddle where uh I mean ultimately the the answer is the the surgeon is a woman, but you it's supposed to showcase, I guess that you automatically assumed it was a man, so like the whole to get to the answer of the riddle, you have to be like, Ah, the surgeon is a woman. <laughs> um, it's even in our riddles is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> We cannot escape sexism,
2: even in our riddles.
1: (laughs) That's right. And actually, we're going to talk about that more a little later. Um, And if we can even look at the reverse example of, like, male nurse. So, yeah, it hurts everybody. Um, And since we don't have a gender-neutral third-person pronoun in English, most of our idioms and proverbs and perhaps riddles use the masculine he. And another thing about Proverbs is the ones that do use she or refer specifically to women usually don't paint women in the best light. Like, he who follows his wife's advice will never see the face of God.
2: Or a neck without a head, buttocks without a hole, and a girl without shame are not worth admiring or marrying. What an expression. <laughs> I
1: know. <laughs> when were people saying that? I missed it. Uh, a woman is like a lemon. You squeeze her and throw her away. Gross. Yeah.
2: Seven women in their right senses are surpassed by a madman.
1: Which is offensive on more than one level. <laughs>
2: That's a nice, like, little layer of offense, like ableist, sexist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good.
1: It's a cocktail. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then if we look at gendered languages, that is Latin languages where nouns themselves are gendered, like French or Spanish. Um, so, le for masculine and la for feminine in French, every noun. We'll have either le or la in front of it. Most of you probably know this, but you know, just make sure we're on the same page. On top of that, these languages don't have a gender neutral plural word like them or they. Instead, you have the masculine plural and the feminine plural. For example, in French, il, which is masculine, or elle, which is feminine. And when you're talking about a group of all men or all women, the word you would use to describe the group is clear. Even if one man enters a group of 5, 10, 100, 1,000 women, though, you switch over to the masculine plural. You don't call it a group of women anymore. It becomes a group of men, even though there's one man in the whole group. And the suggestion is that one man takes precedent over any number of women. He is the most important person in that group. He is how you will refer to that group. And if someone walks by... Uh, this group of mostly women and one dude. The person is going to address them as if they were all men, or alternately, as if there aren't any women present.
2: Yeah, that reminds me of the episode that we did on women and travel alone, where if people still accused a group of women as traveling alone, as right. if the only thing that validates their
1: existence
2: is the presence of at least one man, you could be right. you could be a hundred women deep and it's still alone. Right,
1: you're traveling alone. <laughs> what were you doing? And this is where I said, like, the English hey guys would fall into, too. And I am very guilty of saying that. And in my brain, it's degendered. But as the article I was reading pointed out, if you went to a group of men and said, hey, ladies, it would in general not be taken favorably and might even start a fight.
2: Yes. Well, that's where my favorite colloquialism really fits in handy, y'all. Y'all, people, yeah. in the, people in the South like that, like we got it down. Y'all means all. It's a it's a gender neutral way to address a group. So instead of saying, hey guys, or hey ladies, you're going to say, hey y'all. And what's funny, because when I was teaching, we have to find all different kinds of ways to address a classroom um, that are not guys or hey ladies or whatever. So it was always good morning, friends, good morning, comrades, good morning, this, good morning, that, you know. Um, so there are all kinds of better words other than guys to use.
1: Yeah, and it's one of those things where in my head it's degendered, but I don't know what it is in other people's heads, and I don't want to leave anyone out with my choice of language. And it, I know that some people are probably thinking this is, seems such a small thing, but as I tried to get across in the beginning, language really is very important, and it impacts so much of the way we think, even if we don't realize it.
2: Definitely. Oh, God, there's this is really random, but there's this classic final episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show. That show ends with Mary getting fired, and when she's fired, it's she's the only woman in a group of male journalists, and the person who is firing her says, you guys are fired. And then she's like, wait a minute, he said, guys, maybe that doesn't include me. <laughs> and she has to, like, ask if, She was included in that because technically she is not a
1: guy. (laughs) And I'm going to assume she was. She was. She was. Here's another one that a couple of you listeners have written in about is the whole question of calling women girls and whether or not it's degrading. Um, And generally outside of friend groups, if you think about it, if you call a group of men boys, it is viewed as an insult or it implies that they are incompetent.
2: Oh, my goodness. This has been a—I have a lot of feelings on this particular one. Um, first of all, I call women girls. I definitely should not. Um, but for me, it's it's a friendly thing, like, hey, girl, hey, girl. And even someone, someone pointed out that that's not necessarily, you know, if someone is non-binary, saying, hey, girl, to them is— might not be something they, they want to hear. If someone is gender nonconforming, that might not be something they want to hear. I call men girl. Like, if we're friends, you're my girl. Like, that's <laughs> how it is in my head. And right. it sucks to realize that, like, the imprint, like, like, what you were saying with guys, like, the way that it reads in my head might not be the way it reads to other people in their head. And I just want to be, you know, aware of that. But then it's also tough because... It just shows how limiting our language is. So, like, if I if, if am a woman in a heterosexual romantic relationship, that person is supposed to be my boyfriend. But he's not a boy. I'm not a girl. You know, we don't really <laughs> right. have a lot of words that, like, I don't use the word boyfriend. I don't use the word girlfriend because this is, if I'm in a relationship with someone, I'm not a girl. He's not a boy. That's not seventh grade. Right. The word girlfriend, boyfriend does not. Accurately describe what a, like, partnership between two adults is.
1: Totally agree. I remember we did an episode, a video episode on this a while ago about how there aren't really good substitutes for that, but how it is so, it does feel so high school. Like, just the terminology doesn't fit.
2: Yeah, I, I for my romantic partners, I use the word Boo. I don't want to be
1: anyone's girlfriend. Like I'm, your, I'll be your boo. <laughs> that that's that's a good one. I think that's a a, a step up. Um, and if you're thinking that this is an unwieldy grammatical rule, you are correct. But studies show that grammar rules like this do influence global sexism. So that's kind of a big thing. A 2009 study found that grammar like this does correlate with sexism. When asked to read a passage in either English, which is a gender-natural language, meaning nouns aren't assigned gender, but there are gender-specific pronouns, or French and Spanish um, gendered languages, those that read the passage in gendered languages showed higher levels of sexism in their responses on a questionnaire they filled out afterward. This doesn't mean that English speakers are less sexist, but it does show that grammar things like this might influence how we think, even if it's unconsciously.
2: The research didn't stop there. They took the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index, which measures the gender inequality in 134 countries and in various sectors like economics, politics, health, and education, and they divided them up by language type most common in that country. Natural gender was 9%, gendered, 54.5%, and genderless, 19.4%. If you're doing that math and you're saying, that's not 100%, You are totally correct. (laughs) The remaining countries spoke a mixture of these language types. Now, when controlling for things that might influence gender inequality, like religion, political system, relative development, and geographical location, the researchers found that countries where gendered languages are primarily spoken ranked highest in terms of gender inequality. Interestingly, though, genderless languages display the second highest rate of gender inequality, and natural gender is the least.
1: And one hypothesis for why genderless languages didn't fare as well suggests that in a language without a gender, the brain, in the brain, the default is male. Other studies kind of demonstrate this, finding that hearing a phrase like heroines and heroes makes people believe that there are more heroines, um, as opposed to just saying heroes, um, you're just gonna think all men are, and that's what the study found. And that the order matters too, like whatever you say first. Your brain assigns that thing more importance, so putting heroines first instead of heroes. uh, There's all these things that we don't realize our brain is doing when we say things. Um, If we go back to the gendering of nouns, a 2002 study found that uh, this leaked out into other thought processes. The researchers put together a list of 24 objects that have opposite genders in Spanish and German. For both languages, half of the items were gendered masculine and the other half feminine. A group of native Spanish speakers and a group of native German speakers who were also proficient in English were then asked in English to come up with three adjectives for each object. With each participant, the gender of their native language influenced the adjectives of the words that they chose. For example, the German word for key is masculine, and in Spanish, it is feminine. German speakers describe keys with words like useful, hard, heavy, jagged, and metal. Spanish speakers described it using words like intricate, little, tiny, lovely, and golden. Or if we look at the example of bridge, the German speakers described it as delicate, fragile, beautiful, elegant, and slender. Spanish speakers described a bridge using words like strong, big, dangerous, sturdy, and towering. And I bet you can guess in which language bridge is gendered. Feminine. Yeah, it's the the German language. And that's pretty stark. Those examples it kind of shocked me.
2: Yeah, they're describing a bridge. It sounds like you're describing like a woman's arm, like slender, <laughs> elegant. It's, it, it is really stark. It is.
1: These participants were also shown a pair of pictures, one containing a person and the other an object, and they were asked to rate how similar the pictures were. The person and the object. If the biological sex of the person matched the gender of the object in their native language, the participants rated them as similar. If it didn't, then they said they had no similarities, which is interesting.
2: Yeah. It, it's, it's wild how language, I mean, it really gets in your head. <laughs> like I guess these examples just really drive that home, that it really gets in your head in, in ways that you might not even realize.
1: Yeah, and I, as someone who didn't grow up with uh, speaking a gendered language, I remember learning um, French and Spanish in, like, elementary school and being so confused by the the article before the word. And so I, I don't have, I don't really have a a starting point for knowing how much that impacts how you think of things. I do remember thinking, like, I feel like chocolate is masculine in French. Um, And I always thought it should be feminine, which says more about me than it does about the French language. (laughs) But I had more of that kind of association with it. Um, But yeah, again, I'd love to hear from people who speak other languages about their thoughts on this. And obviously studies like the ones we're describing... Are tricky. There are a lot of factors that influence inequality, and um, the larger sample size of countries that speak gendered languages compared to those that speak gender natural ones makes it harder to draw conclusions. But at the same time, I, I would love to see more research because I think that there is something worth looking into there. Definitely. And we have a little bit more for you, but first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
0: No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So another thing that we can discuss uh, is masculinized words versus feminized words. Over time, some words in even non-gendered languages have been masculinized or feminized, sort of like that collocation thing we were discussing at the top, but a bit broader. So men are more likely to be described using certain words, and women are more likely to be described using other words. And masculinized words generally have a more positive connotation, and feminized words generally have a more negative one.
2: And we could even extend this conversation to include phrases like, like a girl which has traditionally been considered a bad thing, but is sort of like shrill, kind of being reclaimed. But still, this idea that things that are associated with femininity are bad, that's still a thing. I mean, Anna, you've talked a, a bit on the show about how that's something that you grew up with.
1: Yeah. Um, by the time, I think I, I mentioned this in an episode, by the time I was in kindergarten, I hated the color pink because I associated it with being girly, and I didn't want to be associated with that. Um, and we talked about how this could even be applied, and there's a lot of discussion around this um, recently, uh, that it could be applied to the party system in the U.S., with the Democratic Party being the feminized party and the conservative party being the masculinized party.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Oh, yeah. There's so much interesting writing around that happening as we speak.
2: And I think we it's if, if you spend any time in the muckety-muck that is like right-wing Twitter, their obsession with conveying like liberal or progressive men on the left as feminine is really fascinating. Like terms like calling a progressive male, like beta soy boy, like, yeah, like soy boy, beta cuck,
1: things like that, where it's so weirdly, it's just very weird. It is, it is. Um, And there's actually a study kind of looking into this where um, it was looking into the relationship or possible relationships between sexism and self-image, and it found that people who display hostile sexism, dislike of women, that's what they defined it as in the study, are more likely to describe themselves using words we typically associate with masculinity, like brave, physically strong, determined, admirable, confident, and that was the case for men. But for women displaying hostile sexism, they describe themselves in terms that went against traditional femininity. So not tolerant, not cooperative, not compassionate, not sensitive, things like that. Almost going out of their way to say, I am not like those other girls, which is a trope we've discussed before.
2: Yes. Uh, it's so, I mean, it's funny when we apply... Gender to traits that are good, you know. know. <laughs> it's just really, really, you know, like who wants to describe themselves as intolerant and not cooperative? Like, those aren't good qualities.
1: No, <laughs> I can't imagine being very proud. Why oh, I, I am not sensitive, not tolerant, not and it's all these nuts, like, it's nothing like that. You are, you're just basically saying, I am not that, right? mm hmm. Um, and the study also found that sexism and racism are likely to occur in the same people because basically they're buying into the idea that we are not all created equal and that the unequal social hierarchies that stem from that, um, like, they buy into those.
2: Oh, no shit. Like, that yeah. doesn't surprise me at all.
1: Some <laughs> of those things reading it, like, thank you, science. I mean, I'm, I always suspected. <laughs>
2: that science confirms what we've already known forever. Exactly.
1: Yeah, other studies have shown that words masculinized and words that are feminized influence what we believe to be the proper behavior for men and for women and that this impacts what types of job men versus women can get. For instance, women are more likely to get jobs with descriptors like kind, caring, other things like that, and men are more likely to get jobs with words like ambitious and independent. And this impacts the advertising and targeting of jobs, so which jobs men and women are more likely to pursue based on the descriptors in the job description and also the candidate more likely to get hired for it. So it's kind of like, not cyclical, I guess sort of cyclical, but it it happens from the advertising process to the job interview. It impacts all of that.
2: And I think once you have the job, I think it probably, at least in my, you know, my personal experience, I think it informs who ends up doing what kind of labor in a workplace. Like, we've talked about emotional labor, you know, if you associate being caring or organized or, you know, sensitive with being a woman, you might let your male employees get, like, not do that. Like, you might be thinking, like, oh, that's just a gendered trait that I associate with women, therefore... You know, Joe, the man, doesn't have to be responsible for that bit of labor. And so I think not only can it inform who applies for and gets what jobs, but how those jobs are done once you get them.
1: Yeah, yeah, completely. And all of the stuff we're talking about does have a real-world impact, like things like that, Um, contributing to a culture that disrespects women, that makes it difficult for them to be as openly ambitious, to get equal pay, to hold positions of authority. Because we don't see women in those positions reflected in our language, and that in turn influences how we think of women. It suggests that women are less than or are outside of the norm. It suggests that women are sexual objects at the service of men and that they are not to be believed, that the masculine is ideal. And this stuff is internalized at a young age. It it contributes to a culture that routinely erases the experience of trans people and non-binary folks. These are important things that we're talking about on a societal level right now. And, of course, language is only one part of the solution, but it is something that we can work on improving.
2: Definitely. There are some changes that we can be happy about. Some institutions around the world are taking steps to change language, whether it's at the countrywide level, in the case of Switzerland, updating their dictionary with a gender-neutral pronoun, or U.S. universities like Yale swapping out words like freshmen or upperclassmen to first year and upper year.
1: And for those that are thinking, well, this this sounds like a lot of work, Uh, (laughs) and and it can be, uh, but there are some steps that we can take on a personal level. Uh, Gently calling people out is one, including yourself. Mayam Bialik has a whole video on how to do this when it comes to uh, the whole girl versus woman thing, and it's wonderful and super helpful. Um, Doing this all the time might seem like a full-time job, but doing it even some of the time can make a difference.
2: Yeah, and updating idioms and award titles, like instead of best man for the job, best person for the job.
1: In letters or emails, using something gender neutral if you don't know how someone identifies to whom it may concern, for example. Or a name. A name works, too, if you're comfortable on a first name basis, because then again, if you're not, then you get into the Mr., Mrs., 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 Mrs. thing. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Using they or avoiding pronouns
2: altogether, which can be helpful to be more inclusive of folks who are gender nonconforming. Here in D.C., you can actually get the um, honorific Mix MX on your driver's license as opposed to like Miss or Mrs. Um, It's a gender neutral way of addressing someone formally.
1: That's, That's pretty cool. Um, In general, being more aware of the words we choose and what those words communicate and what they say about the values and beliefs of our society on a deeper level. If you will, recognizing where we need to do some work and then doing that work. I think that that's where we can leave this. Yeah, I think it's just really
2: about being open to thinking about how we use language and, and sort of, you know, being willing to get it wrong and being willing to change and sort of update these outdated ways of thinking.
1: Yeah. And knowing this history, I think is, can be a important step of that an important step of moving forward and making something better. And I'm excited to see that. This about brings us to the end of our deep dive into the sexism of language. Uh, Like we said, we'd love to hear from people who speak different languages. Um, what your experience has been. You can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com or you can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. And where can people find you, Bridget?
2: Well, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, my time with Sminty is winding down. So if you want to keep up with all the fun things I'm going to be doing, you can find me on Twitter at Bridget Marie and on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC. DC like the city.
1: Thanks, as always, to our producer, Trevor Young, and thanks to you for listening. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95%